Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. Today I am so pleased to once again be speaking with Dr. Pema Dirtle about his recently released book called Luminous Awareness. This book is a guide to understanding the profound literary work called The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was taught by Padmasambhava hundreds of years ago in Tibet, and which guides us through the dying process into the interval between death and the next rebirth. Pema explains how these beautiful teachings can be applied today in the 21st century by anyone, anytime, as a way to prepare for death, to have a peaceful death, to have a good rebirth, and even perhaps recognize liberation from suffering. So welcome again, Pema. It's so lovely to be talking to you today about your lovely book called Luminous Awareness. Thanks very much for having me. This book is about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. My first question is, what is the Tibetan Book of the Dead and why is it such an important book in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition? The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is what it's known in, as in English, in the English-speaking world, is a collection of teachings about what happens to us as we die once we are dead, so in between death and rebirth, and also about what happens as we are reborn. And it gives a set of practices that you can do to turn that process, the process of dying and being reborn, into an opportunity for total enlightenment or full liberation from suffering which means to, in essence, to not be thrown forward into another rebirth, into another life of suffering. So you become essentially a Buddha. That's why it's important because it provides that opportunity for every single person. It's based on, it's a set of teachings that were revealed as terma. Terma is a word in Tibetan that means hidden treasure which means basically Padmasambhava, who introduced Buddhism to Tibet in around 750 CE, he deemed that there were some teachings that the Tibetan people were not ready for. And so he asked his principal student, Yeshi Sogyal, who was the first woman to become enlightened in recorded history. So like we have other women who've become enlightened, but, but they're not recorded in history. Their enlightenment's passed down as oral wisdom. But we have... Yes, she's as a recorded person, so she's in the historical period. He asked her to hide them, hide the teachings until people were ready for them, which she then did in a cave on a mountain in central Tibet. And then some 600 years later, a 15-year-old boy um, by the name of Karma Lingpa had a dream of a female wisdom being that led him to the mountain, 
to the top of the mountain, to the cave, and then to find the teachings in the cave. And he then took them out of the cave and transposed them into the Tibetan of the day. So they were not written in the Tibetan language of the day. And they then became, and this is around 1350, something like that, 1330, then they became the most dominant teachings in the Vajrayana world, so the Tantric Buddhist world, which is Tibet, Mongolia, Bhutan, Nepal, Ladakh, Sikkim, etc., which coincided with the revelation of them, the refinding of them, coincided with the plague, the Black Death in Europe and Asia. So around 1330 to 13, well, you know, onwards, we have multiple waves of the Black Death in both China and in other parts of Asia and in Europe. So it coincided with that huge disturbance. So people really took to it as a teaching because it gave them comfort and the opportunity for liberation in a time when death was their literal next-door neighbour. So it talks about a number of different bardos. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what does that mean? What does bardo mean? Bardo comes from two Tibetan words, one which which means a sort of an island or stepping stone and the other word which means movement so so literally literally it would be translated as an island in a stream of movement but it refers to any mind state in between major any sort of subtle mind state in between major or normal mind states so it points to the state in between death and rebirth so we die but then a subtle part of the mind remains until we're reborn so there's this bardo in between death and rebirth. But there are also bardos in between dreaming and waking up. So there's a bardo in between there. So there's this distinct mind state of dreaming and the distinct mind state of being awake. And there's a bardo in between. So it's a gap or a hiatus or a pause in between. There's also a, a bardo between each and every single thought we have because despite how it feels to us, thoughts come one at a time though in kind of quite rapid succession but in between each one there's a pause so there's a bardo in between and we call that the bardo of samadhi which we encounter in samadhi simply means meditation so we encounter that bardo between thoughts in meditation and so this interesting thing is that we can kind of like the bardo that we can find and see and observe to be true and real quite easily is that one the bardo of samadhi or meditation because we can all sit in meditation and we can all see after a period of time in practice meditation practice of meditation that there is definitely a gap between thinking feeling and sensing in between all of each of those events mental events there's a gap and in that gap there's a, a natural unadorned awareness and it's that natural unadorned awareness which in the Nyingma tradition we call our true nature of mind. And it's that natural awareness that is the gateway to ultimate liberation. And so when we die, the thinking mind stops because we're dead. (laughs) But the subtle mind is still there. There's something still there. So that natural awareness that pervades everything, it remains and it becomes evident and becomes luminous, in fact. And then a simple recognition of that means that we can become free. We don't need to be reborn again. We don't need to suffer anymore. So do you need to be a Buddhist to practice the teachings that are in the Tibetan Book of the Dead? No. 
I, the thing is, certain of the Bardo practices are very culturally specific because they were revealed for Asian people in the Himalayan region and beyond, so into Mongolia and places like that, where this where this belief system was in place, the Vajrayana belief system. So it includes all of the sort of Buddhist deities and things that were part of that system in the practices of from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But according to the teachings themselves, when we each die, what rises in the mind is a manifestation or a projection, more like a movie projection, you know, a projection of our own beliefs, views, karma and experience. So each person, when they die, they will have visions that are unique to them. So the only thing that is not, basically the practice is universal, but in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they go into great depth talking about these visions that people who are born, live and die as Vajrayana practitioners, Vajrayana believers will see. But other people, Christians, Hindus, Jains, Muslims, Jewish people, they will see other visions because the visions are not what we call they, they are like all other things without any inherent nature. They're all a projection of our ordinary mind. So everything that's projected it comes from our ordinary mind. And so the only thing there is that those descriptions, they would not be necessarily relevant for everyone. So you can skip over them. And in fact, in my book, I don't go into them in any real detail at all because for everyone it's different. But there are some core things that all sentient beings, human beings, animals, birds, bees, and fishies, will experience and it doesn't matter what they believe and those are what we call the three appearances so there's a, a black vision a white vision and a red one those are you those are universal everyone experiences those not in the same order there's some debate about whether or not male people experience it a certain way and female people experience it another kind of way but for me i think it's more about the tendency of the mind where the mind is leaning for which things they see first but the point is to recognize that these things will happen and to recognize that anything else that happens is just a projection of the mind, so not get frightened, not get drawn in or attached, just to remain calm and detached as we are in meditation. Let it all kind of rise and come and go until the final kind of really important thing happens, which is the true nature of all things, which is almost, which we call the mother luminosity, rises. And then in our little child luminosity, that sort of like true nature of mind that we have, we recognize that as our own true nature, become one with that, and then we're free. <laughs> yep, okay. <laughs> so what are the core teachings and how do these core practices or core teachings, how can they help people as they are nearing that time of death? All of the core practices are about recognizing the bardo in each any given situation but you don't have to do all of them you can just pick one and the one that in the in the in the teachings themselves they really encourage is just simple meditation and as we know as we're approaching death meditation does a lot of things but one of the sort of potent things that it's not understood that it does that it it strips us of fear so we become quite aware that there's something beyond this ordinary thinking feeling and sensing mind in meditation we become quite aware of that there's this other natural unadorned awareness that pervades our entire experience that's ever present. And in Buddhism, we consider that to be our, what we call our Buddha nature is one way of putting it. Or in the Nyingma tradition, we would say that's Rigpa, which simply means true nature of mind um, or awareness, perfect unadorned awareness. 
And then the practice that you need to do is the one that you feel most drawn to that helps you to recognize that truth, the, the unadorned nature of your own awareness, so that when we pass away, we can then recognize it in the bardo experience, the, the bardo of dying. And then there's the bardo of luminosity, which happens after that one. So it's about recognizing that state, that natural unadorned awareness. And the quickest and easiest way to do that is simple meditation. But there are also practices like dream yoga, which which is helping us to recognize not only the bardo that is in between dreaming and waking, but also, and in that, that bardo, there's just one thing, which is our own natural awareness, right? So so we then, if we're doing dream yoga, we'd recognize what we recognize in, in meditation, which is that, oh, in between this dreaming state I was in and this waking state I'm now entering, there's this unadorned natural awareness that actually pervades all states. It's there in the dreaming state. It's there in the awakened state. But it's there in its completely unadorned natural form in between the two. So that's the point. So if you wanted, if you're like one of these people who lucid dreams easily, you could do dream yoga. And that helps us to also learn that everything's created by the mind. So can I just ask, what do you mean by unadorned natural awareness? So we all think that who we are is our thinking our feelings or emotions and our physical sensations, the things that we feel in our body. We think that's us. And on a certain level, that is us, but that's the ordinary us that is born. And because it's born, it must die. So that, what I call Pema, this thinking, feeling and sensing entity, it is impermanent. It is. It lacks any inherent substance. It's a fabrication, and so it will die. But this unadorned natural awareness, which pervades every state that we have, every every in meditation we find it, in dream yoga we find it. That is what we call Buddha nature, which is not born. So it's unborn, therefore undying. So it transcends death. So that's the true nature of all, all the absolute nature of Buddha nature, Tathagatagarbha is another way of saying Buddha nature. So that's what that is. And that's what we're looking to become one with in the Bardo practices so that we can be free. But the other thing is in other religious traditions, there are pointers to this. So in the Hindu tradition, they would call that Brahma. In the Christian tradition, we would just say this is God. There's some beautiful poems by St. John of the Cross, uh, Little Flower, Teresa, where they talk about this non-dual state. So this natural awareness is a non-dual state where the self ceases to persist. So, you know, even St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and um, many Hindu poets and saints, and also not only that, but Sufi mystics like Rumi, Hafiz, they all talk about this non-dual state that is with us always. And in the Sufic mystical tradition of the Islamic faith, they refer to, their word for it is the beloved because the beloved's ever present always with us never will leave us but our word for it in the tibetan system is rigpa so it's just but the other thing is it's not fancy or hard to find or or some sort of highly elevated thing it's completely natural and with us all the time so to glimpse it all we need to do is actually look into the gap in between our thinking feeling and sensing and we can all every single one of us get a glimpse of that for a second or two Without very, with very little meditation training. We can sense that there is this awareness of things. So, so one trick in our tradition that we do is we just click our finger and you just go, were you aware of that? So you're aware of hearing. There's more than just the hearing. You're aware of the hearing. 
and then so it's so this idea of the non-dual state or this natural unadorned awareness it transcends actually buddhism it's there in all of the great faith traditions and um, we just have different words for it and so i try to avoid using too many of the you know tibetan and buddhist words and i use the word mother luminosity to describe it which is a translation of how it's said in tibetan and sanskrit but there are many other ways to put this like the sufis called it beloved or god one of the names of allah christians called it god you know there's so many and the hindus call it all kinds of things up and brahman depending on the tradition in the hindu many hindu traditions so it's there everywhere in all of the mystical traditions but we just have this particular way of talking about it in buddhism and the unique thing about buddhism is that we have a methodology or a means of getting there quickly so no offense to the, any of the other faith traditions but they but it's not really their focus their focus isn't to get there quickly perhaps because of kind of other things play a more prominent role in all of the other faith traditions but for us liberation is the only goal and liberation while we're alive is a goal which is not necessarily a goal for some other traditions so that's why we sort of have this very sort of direct way of saying you can do this while you're alive you can achieve this in this very lifetime you can be free does it talk much about this idea of fear of death because you know, if we want to apply it in the 21st century, and fear certainly is a significant component of people's views of dying and death and, and rebirth or what comes after death. So does it explain much about fear and where that comes from and how it can be addressed? It does, in a, in a, uh, not, not, in a, not in a very direct way. So it talks about all of the disturbing emotions and, and the fundamental ones are uh, ignorance of our natural state, fear or aversion, and detachment or desire, greed. So fear or, or aversion is fundamental one of the things that keeps us trapped. So it does talk about that. And, it does, and there, there are these beautiful poems in it, actually, where they talk to the deceased person because you, you can recite it to the deceased person. If they're a Vajrayana practitioner, that's commonly done. So, you, and there's these beautiful poems where it says, you know, child of the Buddha, do not be afraid. Child of the Buddha, do not worry. And it sort of eases the person into their dying state. So the, the book presupposes or presumes that whoever is going to be read this understands a few basic things. One of them is that everything's impermanent. All things that are born will die. That, so, you know, these are called the four great seals of Buddha Dharma. Everything is impermanent. Everything, all, that, all those who are born will die. This is something that all Buddhists think about each day. Number two is all, nothing has inherent substance. So everything depends on everything else. Everything is interconnected with everything else. Nothing's truly independent or separate. And the third thing is that all emotional states lead to pain or suffering which means even our love and our attachment, if they're ordinary worldly things, they lead to pain and suffering. And the other one is that nirvana is possible, liberation is possible, and it is true peace. So those are the four sort of fundamental. If you don't believe in those four things, you're not a Buddhist, right? But I think, you know, most of us in the, most of us in the West, whether Buddhist or not, we believe almost all of those if we look carefully. So when we really take impermanence to heart, fear of death is weakened dramatically. When we really take the fact that things lack inherent existence, they don't really exist on their own, 
that weakens our fear of death as well. But then the big one, daily practice of meditation, you wouldn't think so. It does naturally diminish our fear. So just sitting in meditation diminishes our fear. And the, the reason being because we start to see the way what we think of ourselves just arises in each moment in reaction to stuff. So we become less attached to the self and become more identified with our own natural awareness that has no death. So meditation in itself is a great way to overcome fear of death, but also contemplating impermanence regularly, understanding that nothing exists independently, and understanding that all these emotional states, you know, attachment and aversion, they, they all lead to pain, no matter what they look like on the outside. They might seem delightful on the outside, but ultimately they lead to pain because they end. It also talks about the process of dissolution, you mm. know, as the body is starting to go through that death death process. How important do you think understanding and even preparing for that uh, dissolution process can help also reduce that fear of death? I think it's really important for reducing fear of, as we're experiencing the dying process because we recognise what's happening. And so the huge thing, the biggest creator of fear is uncertainty and not knowing. So when we know that as the body as we as the senses dissolve and the ordinary mind dissolves, so it goes in this particular order. We lose one sense at a time, so our sight or hearing or taste or whatever. Each one goes in order, and we feel a certain way and experience a certain thing. And so the Bardo teachings from the Tibetan Book of the Dead they really point out this is the order in which they happen. And so when you're going through that, you can see the, see these as milestones. Like, oh, this is this is where I am. I've lost this sense and I'm experiencing this thing. This is where I am. So you can be reassured that you know where you are and you don't fall prey to panic. The other thing, the other thing though, is that in the Tibetan system, there's a huge amount of weight put on the elements, you know, earth, wind, air, fire, and a huge weight put on how they relate to attachment aversion, all the proliferation of the many kind of negative feelings and positive feelings and thoughts that we can have as a result of that. That stuff actually is not essential to know. All you really need to know is I am dying. I am going through this process. I'm at this point. This is what's going to happen next. So you won't be surprised or shocked. And then you can sort of navigate through that and just kind of in a very kind of calm, relaxed way. And the most important thing as we're dying is that we die relaxed. We die calm and preferably we open our heart to love, joy, some positive experience. So if we have faith, we can open our hearts to our objects of our faith. If we, have, if we know what it is to feel loved, we're going to open our hearts to that. If we know what it is to feel pure, ungrasping joy, so sort of quite natural, pure joy, then we can open our hearts to that. And that will protect us through the process so that the fear doesn't take over. But having those milestones, knowing exactly how it's going to happen, I think is very helpful. But not in the sort of like complicated, tantric way that the original teachings have it. I think that's for specialists. But for everyday peeps like us, I think it's, it, all we need is this simple process that we recognize, oh, that's happening, that's happening. Now this will happen. Okay, now I know that this thing is coming up. And you just can remain calm as you process through that experience. In my experience, just working in palliative care, both patients and their carers and family members are often asking 
you know, what will happen at the time of death. So mm. can you actually explain in the, the simple form how the senses dissolve into each other? And can you just give a bit of a, an explanation about how it works and in, in what order this book explains it? Yes. So I'll just focus on the things that we'll experience rather than on the theory. The theory goes into the elements. It links a particular consciousness with a particular element. And if you don't believe in that stuff, then it can become quite um, overwhelming and distracting, actually, and, and not particularly helpful. So when we die, the first thing we start to feel is kind of a closing in or a closing down of our experience. So, so the first thing to stop is our respiration and heart rate, the next thing to stop is brain activity. So that's what we call in the West clinical death. But then things persist beyond that for us as Buddhists. And then things, the senses, which are connected to the consciousness of the what we call the dualistic mind, the mind that will die, not the mind that will survive, um, it starts to dissolve bit by bit. So the first thing to go, uh, the first thing to happen is that the body becomes very thin feeling and there's a sense that one's sinking so that's the first thing that kind of happens. And there's a, in our, in our visual experience, because we have our eyes closed because our respirations has, has, we're not seeing anything anymore because we're essentially, the body is dead. There's a, what they call a mirage-like vision. So it's just like a hazy kind of a vision. And then you can no longer open your eyes, of course. And then, so the eye sense goes. And then the next thing to happen is that you start to feel kind of dry and then you have like a smoke-like vision. So the miraginess now has a bit more form to it. So it goes from like a quite miragey kind of experience to a smoky kind of experience. And then you lose that sense of, you know, wetness and you feel, and everything feels very dry and then your hearing goes. And then the next thing that happens is you start to become very cold you have a spark-like vision. So we've gone from a mirage to a smoky thing, and now we're starting to see sparks of light. So the interesting thing about those visions that we're seeing is that they're manifestations of our true nature slowly being uncovered. So our true nature is this vast, intense luminosity. But at first, it's just this mirage of somehow maybe a bit of light there in the darkness. Then it's a bit smoky. So we can sense a bit more light. And now we can sort of see like sparks of light coming through. So our true nature is starting to really come through. And at that point, no one, you can't smell anything anymore. So you lose your sense of smell. And then the next thing that happens is that there's, the tongue becomes kind of thick and heavy and then all sense of taste goes. And then the, these sparks of light that you're seeing in your vision, they become actual light, but it's dull twilight kind of experience it's not bright light and then obviously you've lost taste already and then the next thing that happens is that you experience what we call the white appearance so so it's hard to describe this it's just a field of white it is light filled but it's not the luminosity we're looking for it is just this field of white it's like your whole vision and it's strange we're talking about vision here because we you know we're deceased but the, in this field of vision there's just this whiteness and then that naturally dissipates and then there's a field of redness and that dissipates now in the traditional teachings it will depend you won't see these necessarily in that order you might see red first and then white and 
again, like I pointed out before, there's some debate about that, like whether or not that's because of your gender. But for me, I think it's about the nature of your mind. And then after that, there is this profound darkness that descends. And if we're not trained at that point, we can become quite frightened. But actually, this is a good thing. That darkness means that the dualistic mind is now completely dissolved. There's no longer anything holding us to ordinary cycle of birth, death and rebirth. And then from that darkness blooms the clear light or luminosity or Rigpa, which is a very intense, beautiful luminosity. And then all we need to do at that point, and it's actually almost natural if you've got some training, is to just embrace it. Embrace that luminosity. If we're untrained, we might be a bit frightened by that brightness coming after such darkness because it's like they're extreme. So, But if we embrace that, then we're free. And that's it. So that's the process. There's a table in my book that goes through it. And it also talks about like the sense faculties are all linked to certain consciousnesses of the mind, certain parts of the mind. So it's worth kind of having a look at that. But it's not, but you don't, I wouldn't say that you need to memorize it. But I think it's good to have a sense of how things are going to proceed. How does it all then relate to rebirth? Okay, so if if at that luminosity point you don't recognise the true nature when it dawns, the mother luminosity, if you if you are afraid of it or you simply miss it, because the thing is that the duration for which it appears is the duration for which you can sit in meditation in between thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So if in your meditation from day to day, you can sit for a couple of minutes without a thought passing through or a sensation distracting you or an emotion rising, then that's how long the luminosity will dawn for. But if you can sit in meditation for hours, then that's how long the luminosity will dawn for. It will dawn for hours and you'll have time to embrace it, to become one with it. Although, as I said, it's completely, if you've done any meditation training at all, it's quite natural. You just kind of become one with it because you recognize immediately what it is. It's our true nature. But if you miss that, so if you've got no meditation training, it will be like, it'll be like one sixty-fourth of a second is how long it will flash up for the luminosity. And then it will be gone. And then you'll be pushed forward into rebirth based on the quality of the mind that's left. So, you know, we're talking about this very subtle mind that's left right up until that moment of the luminosity dawning. And then it can embrace and then there's no ordinary mind left at all. But the subtle little bit of mind that's left experiencing all this, that will be pushed forward into a new being. It will become a new being. And that there's no person really left in that mind. It's pure impulse. So this is why if your pure impulse, your natural impulses by this point, your naturalized impulses are toward love and joy and compassion, then it will recognize that luminosity and embrace it quite easily. But if your natural impulses are towards jealousy, anger, selfishness, greed, then it won't recognize that at all. And that is what will be pushed forward. And so the new being will be a being, the seed of which is this negative thing. This, all that's left is this habitual nature of the mind. But you could be a very loving being and still miss it because you've done no meditation practice. But then that loving quality moves forward and becomes the core of another being. So it's not just bad stuff that is reborn. It's any stuff that's dualistic becomes the core or seed of a new mind, which becomes a new being. How do we go about cultivating these 
qualities that you were talking about and abandoning these negative aspects what how do we go about doing that work so that at the time of death we can manifest the the right states of mind or the you know the good qualities so what do we need to do during life well we need to cultivate joy so there are these things called the four immeasurables which is a, like a list in buddhism which is a very i think sometimes underrated list but we need to cultivate those so that joy love compassion and equanimity or evenness so they're taught in different orders depending on the lineage or tradition but in our tradition we start with joy because joy is the easiest one so we start there we cultivate joy and then immediately after having cultivated joy which is simply to look at something that makes us feel a subtle sense of joy not not a grasping thing or a clinging thing but just a simple sort of a joy like looking at the sky or looking at the ocean or being out in the yard and watching birds or whatever it is just cultivate joy for 15 or so minutes and then you go immediately into sitting meditation from that place of joy and then what that does is it makes the joy easier to rise next time and joy also quietens the mind a joyful mind is a quiet mind so then when you go sit in your meditation your, your meditation is deeper so those two things actually really arm each other very well and that's really, I mean, honestly, there's not a lot more you need to do because according to our tradition, if you cultivate joy, sit in shamatha, then love will naturally arise. And then after that, compassion will naturally arise. And then after that, evenness will naturally arise. Evenness means to treat all beings completely equally, but also to treat everything that rises in the mind and the world with the same warmth, the same welcome. So that's one way, cultivate joy, sit in meditation, allow that joy to, you know, essentially evolve into love, compassion and evenness. Or you can, depending on your tradition, you know, you could cultivate love. There's a series of practices in the Tibetan tradition about how to cultivate what we call love. And that's simply about, you know, it's a very simple thing. Just remember when you felt loved and then kind of go into meditation and feel how that feels in the body to feel loved and then you allow that to grow and rise and then you open that to all the beings you meet so you give that to all the beings you meet the sort of love and the joy and compassion and evenness that you experience in your meditation you then give that to all other beings it's um there are other ways to do it too like you can train yourself to be kinder train yourself to be more compassionate but in my humble experience those are less effective because they're all about the mind and often when we're kind of training to be compassionate we are simply performing compassion rather than really being compassionate so if you actually develop the quality in oneself first joy love compassion so compassion for oneself first then evenness then it's very easy to give it to others to give love to give joy to give compassion to be even with everyone which is a gift and then that sort of spreads through our lives so really and the buddha always taught meditate live ethically be aware of the true nature of reality that's really basically it so you know to live ethically is to live kindly to live compassionately to give joy where you can to be even with everyone to treat them all the same and to treat all beings fairly it's not complicated and it and if you if you team it with your meditation every day it becomes natural actually because in our natural state those four immeasurables love sorry joy love compassion and evenness they're actually our natural state they're not things we need to acquire or learn how to be we are we can be 
naturally joyful, naturally loving, naturally compassionate, naturally even, you know, because we are in our nature those things. So um, it sort of comes quite naturally if you sit, if you team it with your meditation. And I think it also rapidly transforms us. In the next episode of What About Death, I continue speaking with Dr. Pema about these beautiful and profound teachings in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Pema tells us in part two about how understanding impermanence helps those who are dying as well as those who are left behind and are grieving. He explains the importance of meditation in preparing us for the inevitability of dying, but also to ensure that we live our life well with love, kindness, compassion and joy. Please join me next time for part two of this lovely explanation of this most famous work of Padmasambhava. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.